This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I'm your host, Don Grant. Joining me today in the co-host chair, the host of the British Broadcasting Century podcast, author of the book, Hark, the Biography of Christmas, Mr. Paul Carenza. How are you doing, Paul? I'm very well. How are you? I'm I'm good in this unseasonably warm weather. Yeah, it's seasonably uh, chilly where I am, but that's the world for you, isn't it? Different, pla- different places, different temperatures. Well, good thing you are in England and thus not allowed to leave your house. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can just about leave my house, but there are there are various laws on me going much further than that, which is really so. Weird. So with the with the lockdown in England now, is there any kind of repercussion if you are out and about? Uh, so not at the moment, not this uh, earlier in the year, you could be questioned. And indeed, I think technically now you could be stopped by the police and asked what you're doing, why you're doing it. But generally speaking, unless you're in a group of, um, more than two people, which I think two people is not a group, is it? That's just a duo. Um, (laughs) you're in a group of, of three or more and you don't look like a family, then, uh, yeah, you might be questioned on that. But uh, but even then, I think most of the time they're saying they're going to go a bit easy because I think earlier in the year they were quite heavy-handed. So it's really the big house parties, that sort of thing. But, yeah, if, if it's a big house party, people have been fined £10,000. £10,000? My goodness, yeah. that's, that's, not, that's not an insignificant amount of coin. But I think, actually, they give you a chance to apologise, which is weird, because I know I've heard of, um, like, a bunch of students. There were four students. The police in, sort of raided the house, said, is there a party here? The students said, no, and don't go in that room. And then <laughs> 60 people turned out the room, and suddenly the police go, who are they? Oh, I don't know. They just broke in. And at yeah. that point, it's like, okay, £10,000. You know, you had your chance, but uh, you didn't take it. They were reliving an 80s comedy, I believe. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> are you ready to do this? Yes. Here we go. Thing one. Thing number one. The Garden of Eden was actually in Bedford, England. Did you know this? No, 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 I didn't. Now I'm aware of the Garden of Eden. I'm very aware of Bedford in England as well. I had no idea the two were in exactly the same place. Who now, of course, I'm being a little bit sarcastic in that it was not necessarily in Bedford. However, this comes to us from uh, a rather unique religious sect named the Panacea Society, and they believed that the Garden of Eden was actually in Bedford, England. Uh, They believed that Jesus would return there, and they actually maintained a house for his return. They kept it ready for him just in case it came back, including arguing about whether or not Jesus would need a shower. I mean, these are questions that need to be answered, don't they? You know, no, not enough religions focus on on hygiene and healthcare and uh, and and sharing. You know, that doesn't come up often in the New Testament. So I'm pleased someone's finally got to grips with those things. Yeah, I don't think anyone thought Bedford was the place. You are the Englishman of the two of us. Had you heard of this sect before? I hadn't. No, and I've I've I don't live. I mean, I, I, as, as in England, I would say I don't live near Bedford, but of course, on the global scale, you know, I'm I'm like ninety minutes from Bedford. So yeah, right. in that sense, I'm probably it's a significantly closer than I am. Absolutely, <laughs> well, I've been to Bedford a load of times. I've done. I do. I'm I'm a stand-up comedian in normal times, and I've done a bunch of gigs in Bedford, and it's never ever come up at all that this panacea society. And indeed, therefore, the Garden of Eden was potentially on our doorstep. So this all came from uh, about two centuries ago. There was a there was a 64 year old woman named Joanna Southcott, and she announced that she was pregnant with the Messiah at 74. 
she's doing well Out of your time yeah absolutely yeah uh, it turns out she died literally months after making this claim there was no uh, child etc um and at the time when she made this claim she was also writing an entire huge box filled with prophecies she had all of these prophecies she put them all in this very very large box which she kept sealed and it stayed that way until the end of the 19th century when a woman named Mabel Bartlett was doing some religious studies and stumbled upon all of this information and in the original prophecies the original woman Joanna Southgate said that there would be a, a messiah sort of who would come back and Mabel thought that was her well it's all possible i mean you know we can't rule any of these things out 2020 has been surprising in many ways so uh but i, I mean you know the, the whole joanna southcott's box kind of thing that does sound like the plot of a da vinci code novel waiting to happen kind of thing. well it to be honest sound... when i when i stumbled upon all this information i really wonder why there is not uh, a film that's been made about this story yet because it is quite fascinating so this woman who founded the panacea society who founded this religious organization she believed that she was sort of the the, the second coming she uh, she renamed herself Octavia because I believe it had something to do with she was the eighth of something. And she founded this religion, which is in some ways a little bit sweet, in some ways a little bit creepy, kind of uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, it's that sweet spot. It's that sweet, creepy sweet spot. Uh, between sweet and creepy. It's sweepy, is what it is. <laughs> and they decided that they wanted... The, the original box, apparently, which still exists to this day, the original box has never been opened. And the idea was that Joanna Southcott said that the box could not be opened unless there was a gathering of 24 Church of England bishops. And when the box was opened, uh, it would lead, it would guide the English nation through its time of danger. It paid for posters on London buses. You can actually see some pictures still to this day of double-decker buses with these ads on them that say, England's troubles will increase until the bishops open Joanna Southcott's box, which... If you did not know anything about what that story was, you would look at that and say, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and of course, that gathering of 24 bishops is currently illegal in this country. So uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen anytime soon, is it? So those 24 bishops would be fined 10,000 pounds. Exactly. That's a lot of money, you know. So they've, they've, they actually tried to get the bishops together to open the box. It never actually happened. And the interesting thing about the society was that it was also largely a matriarchy. It was mostly women uh, who did this. There were, there were actually some men, but it was mostly women. So it was, uh, as opposed to some religious sects, which have a charismatic man at the front of them, like a David Koresh type or a Jim Jones type, uh, this was just this woman who said, uh, and, and they had some very odd beliefs. There was a bit of faith healing involved in this. Did you read about this or no? I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of these things, you know, when you, you are going to start to associate things like faith healing with something like this. If you start to believe there's a box and there's a possible second Messiah thing and it's all in Bedford, bizarrely, coincidentally, <laughs> you know, right on their doorstep, the fact they go, oh yes, this is all happening right here, by the way, not a world away in the Middle East. You can, you can see how those sort of sects get swept up in those sorts of things. This woman and the entire sect themselves, they had these little rolls of cloth and that what would happen is Octavia, this woman, would breathe on these squares of cloth and then people would actually send in and they would ask, please, please give me one of these squares of cloth. And the idea was that you would take one, uh, you would put it into a glass of water and then drink it or rub it on a limb and then pour that water into other water and that this would actually cure you of whatever ailments were were, were ailing you. Well, I mean, right now we're after a vaccine. So uh, <laughs> maybe, 
Maybe Joanna Southcott's box had it all along. <laughs> Perhaps if we could find some of these things, we could send them on to Pfizer. That's very true. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of money knocking around for such a thing if you can get it, you know, the right funding. So uh, I'm, I'm all for this. Apparently Dickens referred to her as well. She was in A Tale of Two Cities even. Was uh, she really? I did not yeah, see that. Yeah, Charles Dickens referred to um, to Mrs. Southcott, as it was, uh, in the year 1775 at the very start. Of, well, I said the very start. I think the very start was it was the best of times. It was the worst of times rather than... So there's this woman with a box. In the bedroom, <laughs> you know. I said, well, that's his first draft. It might sound like all of this was, was way in the past. However, uh, the last remaining member of this society actually just passed away about 10 years ago. The, the last remaining woman was a woman named Ruth Klein. Uh, she just died in 2012, the age of 72. And she was still fully in the belief that this uh, society was right and that the Garden of Eden was there in Bedford, England. There's a picture of her on the BBC with uh, with the box, which still to this day, as we, as we speak, has never been opened. And it says that it could only be opened at a time of national crisis. And that's kind of now, I think. So if ever there was a moment. <laughs> it, but that's the thing. Is there ever not really a time of national crisis? It really depends on, on who draws that line. So now, today, there actually is, um, even though there are no members of this society still around, there is still a museum, the Panacea Museum in Bedford, which you can go to. It's on this small little road. I think you should you should actually plan a visit. I believe it's closed now for obvious reasons, but you can go and you can see information about this. There is actually an entire charitable organization that sprung up. And this group, this tiny little fringe group, is still worth millions of pounds. They still take in millions of pounds every year, some of which goes to charitable organizations, some of which goes to the maintenance of this particular uh, museum that they have. And if you go into the museum, museum, you will see the box. You will see Joanna Southcott's, Joanna Southcott's box. Or will you? Because apparently it's actually just a replica. Uh, the the real box, no one knows where it is because they are keeping it in hiding for security reasons, they say. Uh, okay. Th- that sounds to me like one of those things that you could say, oh, let's open the box. Oh, there's nothing in it. Oh, well, it's because it's just a replica. It's a good get out of jail free card, really, to say, oh, well, the real one is in a loft. We'll try it another day, you know. I find it interesting that there's security reasons. Like, really? Do, do we really think people are going to break in and steal Joanna Southcott's prophecies? It's more what could get out of the box, maybe. That's true. Maybe it's, this is Pandora's box. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Open it up and a bunch of Nazis will have their eyes melt in the background. <laughs> Did you know there, there are some other places where the Garden of Eden has been proposed in terms of where they think it is? Uh, have, have you heard of some of the, the, the places where people have said the Garden of Eden is? Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that most of them in places that the Garden of Eden almost definitely isn't. But uh, and I think the United States has a couple of these places. But... The United States has a couple. There's one called the Serpent Mound in Ohio, which is uh, it's an ancient earth mound, which actually in itself is actually sort of mysterious. They think it's about a thousand years old and it is this mound of dirt which is made to look like a serpent they don't know quite who made it or what it was made of but in uh, in 1908 a reverend said well that this is obvious obviously proof that the garden of eden was here in ohio it, it, again it's a possibility i don't want to say definitely not i want to say likely not likely very much not <laughs> or as you said uh, there are a couple of claims in the united states as you would imagine uh, jackson missouri is of course the big one because that is the one which is claimed by the mormons the church of latter-day saints who say that that is in fact in jackson county missouri where the garden of eden was M- most of these places by the way which i did not know that claim uh, where the Garden of Eden is, they're actually going based on the clues given in the Bible. They look at biblical scripture, which says things like, now a river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. And of course, a lot of 
CSI Bible people go through this and try to determine where the garden was based on that. Yeah, and I, I, it's a it's a fair thing to do, isn't it? It's you know you've got four rivers, and we know that what is it? There's uh, uh, the river Pishon, uh, the the river um, Chidekel, the river um, Firath, and, uh, and and Gihon is the second river. And so yeah, in theory, if if, if it's a square and it's just kind of um, flanked by those rivers then it's i suppose if it's flanked by those rivers it's, it's an island isn't it isn't it the island of eden <laughs> you, you would actually think wouldn't you uh although actually my, my favorite location my favorite possible location is mars right well they're looking for water up there so maybe you know follow the river Bana. there was uh there was a man named brinsley lapore trench which really uh, extra points for the name brinsley lapore trench and he sort of said that the biblical description of the of the river watering the garden uh he looked up to the sky and saw oh wait a minute only the canals like that that I've seen are on Mars. So that must be where it be. And so he said that the Garden of Eden was on Mars. It was created by space people. Uh, and Adam and Eve were there. And Noah, uh, when he took the ark, the ark was actually a spaceship. Okay. That was, again, it's possible. I, I like the idea of Bedford, because it, partly because it's nearer me. You know, if I, if, I'd like it to be convenient and handy. And it's, if it's just true. at the M1, that's great. But but the commute to Mars would be, eh. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's they all these, you know, SpaceX kind of missions and things. Maybe, maybe they'll, Elon Musk, he's got the right idea. Or or Richard Branson. Exactly. It's going to be a race to the Garden of Eden now. This is it. <laughs> Thing two. Thing two is always the province of our guest host. And so for thing two, I throw it to Paul. Paul, what is thing two? Thank you. Well, thing two, as as host of a podcast called The British Broadcasting Century, I thought I have to do something on the history of the BBC and the history of British broadcasting and all that sort of thing. So thing two is that the BBC started with a drunken race from the pub to the studio. Now, you said, you emailed this to me, and I still don't know quite how this transpires. Yeah, well, it doesn't start with it as in that wasn't the first broadcast. That wasn't the very first thing. Like, we're on air. This is the BBC. And now a drunken race from the pub. That's not <laughs> quite how it went. But it, it started it as in it sparked it. You know, it, it really created it all because uh, early 1920, well, it was 1922 it was. And actually in the United States at the time, Radio was uh, huge, and ev- there was literally almost every week a new radio station started up. But Britain, of course, is a lot smaller to start with, and we had a bit of a wave band kind of wavelength problem. In that, if that happened over here, it would flood the airwaves completely, and you just wouldn't be able to tune in your your radio set. So, ah, okay. so radio was in fact banned for about eighteen months in Britain from nineteen twenty to nineteen twenty two, and then. Uh, the British government said, OK, you can have one license. And it landed on the desk of this guy called Peter Eckersley, um, an engineer and a bit of a scientist in World War One. In fact, he was there as they did the first ever ground to air radio communication, kind of a pioneer. But it landed on his desk and uh, in a little field in Essex, little mud hut, where, you know, a sort of muddy field, a little hut there where they do all these test radio broadcasts with planes communicating with each other, that sort of thing. And this license landed on his desk there. And it was like, oh, yeah, a license to do radio. And he's like, well, what do you mean do radio? So, well, you know, just put it out there so people can then listen to it on their radio sets at home. But it was all the amateur level, you know, and it's, you know what it's like with um, amateur level based stuff. Basically, it's, basically, it's podcasts. That's what it is. It's lots of people <laughs> doing stuff at the ground level, but nothing at the top level, you know. Right. So, yeah, it landed on his desk, this order to start doing radio. And they put out, um, you know, very, very formal 
broadcast to begin with. And just for a couple of weeks, he was in charge of it. And he went home to listen to it. He started his team of engineers off. And he said, look, just play a couple of these. Here's a couple of gramophone records. And they just went, and now here is a record and would play the record. And he was bored by it. He just thought, this isn't kind of the fun that I wanted. You know, he's from the army kind of, uh, they've just finished World War One. So yeah, so one week he took all the engineers uh, to the pub down the road and had a fish and chip supper and a lot of gin. And then basically he completely calculated it all that he had some as well, but he absolutely then pegged it. It was Tuesday evening as the set time, eight o'clock where they always do the, the show. And and he just made sure he was there first. He didn't go home that week. He decided to have a few drinks, but he made sure they had a few more drinks. And then he raced them to the studio. They tried to get there before he could, so they could do the show they were used to doing, the engineers playing these gramophone records. And he just grabbed the microphone and drunkenly, pretty much, although probably not quite as drunkenly as the others who had got drunk, he just started broadcasting. And the rule was they were meant to shut off after just a few minutes, just a very short broadcast that was the rules the government had said and he did not shut off after 15 minutes or <laughs> half an hour he kept on going for an hour and a half you're meant to shut off every seven minutes in fact just to listen out to government messages saying you need to stop broadcasting there's a ship in trouble there's a plane trying to land all this sort of thing and he did not bother with any of that stuff he instead of playing the gramophone records he would say he was going to play a gramophone record and then improvise and pretend to be the singer and start doing la lots of opera things and it was a complete mess and that's really where the BBC started. So was it actually, uh, it was a law that he actually had to stop after certain periods of time to, to leave radio space? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, seven minutes on, three minutes off. Oh, uh, wow. Just so you could listen out, yeah. Seven minutes on, three minutes off. You do seven minutes on, three minutes off in case we need to land a plane or, you know, there's there's someone in trouble trying to send a message. Those messages from the government never came. But for the first couple of years, just in case they did get in touch and say stop, you had to stop after seven minutes, except for this guy. He just went on and on and on. <laughs> but, but but of course, then people loved it. And suddenly that was the week that they realized there was a market for this thing and that people actually wanted broadcasting uh, on a pretty wide scale rather than just the sort of the radio hams and the and the amateurs, you know. So that's so it actually grew from there and became the BBC. But the other thing that I was drawn to in terms of the, th the facts that, that you shared with me was the fact that at that point, just after it launched, it had four employees, but 30,000 listeners is that true yeah uh in fact so this guy peter eckersley the uh you know the engineer who chief raced engineer, to the park yeah. he he then became the chief engineer of the bbc he was about the fifth person to be employed so he actually arrived a couple of months after the bbc really because he was still there in this hut in a muddy field in essex he realized that that's what he what he loved about broadcasting was the fact he could just be himself and be crazy and people loved it it was in essex wouldn't it have been lovely if it was in bedford I mean, Essex is near Bedford. It's not that far. It's about an hour away. You know, it started in the Panacea Society. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's I'm, I, now that I have you, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot because my one of my favorite facts that I have always known and quoted about the BBC. I, I don't know if you know or not, and I'm hoping you do so that you can confirm whether or not this is actually true. Okay. You, try me. You know your fair share about the BBC. I know bits and pieces. Okay, I so work this them occasionally as well. So I occasionally go up and you know steal a look at some notes. I'm hoping this is one of the things I know. Let's find. So out. one of the things that I stumbled upon years ago, which I've always enjoyed, is the fact that on on April 18th, 1930, the BBC's news announcer came on the air and said there is no news and played some piano music instead. Is this true? It is true. Yeah, I think there might be there's a, even a clip of it somewhere uh, online. But yeah, there was a day of the going. No, there's no news. This, but basically, obviously, there was news out there. Things were happening, but it was partly really about the fact that the BBC at the time were pretty strict on what they did and didn't want 
listeners' ears to to hear. You know, there were pretty strict rules on what actually would qualify for that. Right. Uh, there's also the fact they were actually to start off with anyway, just just before that point. But by that point, they the BBC were deciding what people should or shouldn't hear on their own uh, radio stations. But the very very first few years, the BBC were not allowed to gather or edit news uh, because they were not meant to be conflicting with the newspapers. And so they were fed. You know, the Reuters press agency would feed them the news. The BBC had to read out whatever they were given, even if it said the BBC and Ninnies na 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 na. They would have had to read it out, and that would have been the news for the day. You know, it, it is just so fascinating to think about a time where you would actually think. You know, in in a, you know the uh, the culture of complete news saturation that we have right now of twenty four seven news on 4,623 channels, it's odd to think that they would just say, yeah, there's there's nothing going on. Yeah, apparently so. It's uh, John Reith, who was the director general uh, of the time of the early uh, first sort of 16 years of the BBC, he was in charge. A very, um, he was a Presbyterian, a very uh, sort of authoritarian. We did a, an episode of our podcast quite recently looking to his backstory. And you can see that actually, although he had this big, very strict moral code, John Reed's backstory was a little bit more uh, illicit than that. You know, there were kind of as a near affair here. There was a kind of a gay affair over there as well in his past. And and yet when he started the BBC up and he was the first boss of the BBC, he had such a strict moral code that, in fact, that chief engineer that I was talking about, Peter Eckersley, John Reith sacked him uh, because Peter Eckersley had had an affair with one of the, uh, the the wives, actually, of one of the other producers of the BBC. <laughs> Rumour has it as well that he actually used one of the studio's to actually have his little bit of uh, of quiet time with this lady. Um, <laughs> hopefully he hadn't pushed the button to, to stop broadcasting. But um, So wait, are you yeah. saying that a powerful man was brought down by some sort of sex scandal? Apparently it did happen once. You know. <laughs> it's it's never twice. happened. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe twice in the history of that guy. Thing three. The 173-year-old friendship between Ireland and Native American tribes. This is easily one of the most charming and heartwarming things I've seen in 2020. Um, had you heard about this before I sent it to you? I had not heard about this at all. And I'm surprised I hadn't because the news is falling over itself at the minute to find good news stories. And, and this is one of them. Yeah, it is funny. 2020, everyone needs desperately needs as much good news as they possibly can. Um, so basically, it all started about 170 years ago during the Great Potato Famine, uh, when Choctaw leaders gave $170 to the Irish as they battled the potato famine. Now, $170 turns out to be, you know, roughly about $5,000 today. But it just seemed like such an odd thing that this nation of Native Americans would send off money to this uh, this country far away where there was this famine happening. But they, they kind of like, you know, passed the hat and took up the collection and sent it off. And that thing has never been forgotten. I think it's just lovely that that, as you said, it's it happened, and yet the the memory of it clearly is still strong. And the fact that what is his great great maybe great great grandchildren now, uh, it's not like anyone remembers that particularly. It's not like it's something I I, I I never read about it. I don't know if it's in many history books, but the, that it, it goes on between those nations, and there's that connection now, and it's just been uh, replenished and reminded of them now, which will keep us going for another another couple hundred years, hopefully. Yeah, of course. This year, the the relationship came back again because what happened is the Native American uh, suffered very heavily because of COVID nineteen, uh, and so all of a sudden, a GoFundMe page sprung up uh, for the Navajo and the Hopi families that were 
pretty much devastated by coronavirus. It raised over $3 million. And when people looked at some of the donations, they noticed the names were names like O'Neill and Hanrahan and O'Leary. And they did a little bit of investigating and found that there was a tremendous connection between the Irish and this GoFundMe page who raised millions of dollars. Yeah, so I, I wasn't that familiar with the, the chocolate donation. I, I'd, I'd, been, I'd heard of them. I didn't know a lot about them. So it's, this has been lovely for me to be able to sort of look into it a bit more. And I realized that I've been not only, I've been to Ireland and I've been to the areas around near where the chocolate donation uh, are. And, and yet both of these sort of, this relationship. Yeah, it's, it, it, the connection really goes back a long way. And it's been kind of uh, reconnected in a number of ways. There is a uh, there's a kindred spirits Choctaw monument in Ireland, which is built up, which is a lovely uh, statue of feathers, which was sent to the Irish. And then the other way that, of course, this came uh, and manifested itself just recently in September was that uh, Ireland's lacrosse team gave its spot in an, the international tournament to a Native American team which is really quite extraordinary. Yeah, it, it's just lovely. They, they needed a gap and they, they said, oh yeah, you can play if there's a space for you. And Ireland went, fine, we'll stand aside. And uh, and yeah, great. As, as one of the people said on the previous story, in fact, uh, yeah, that's, this is what solidarity looks like. That was put on the, one of the GoFundMe pages. And solidarity, international solidarity between two nations that seem a world apart, but clearly have uh, something in the past that's not been forgotten. Well, this is the for the World Games 2022, which is, uh, I mean, had you heard of the World Games before? I've never heard of the World Games before. I'm not familiar with the World Games, but if it's if it's lacrosse, I'm, I'm not up on my lacrosse at the minute. Well, the World Games actually is kind of like an undercard to the Olympics. It's a place where they sort of okay. try out various and sundry sports, lacrosse of which is one of them. Um, and in the World Games 2022, the Iroquois team uh, finished very well. They finished third, but they were told that they actually actually couldn't compete because they were not a sovereign nation and did not have an Olympic committee. And then this year in August, they decided to reverse that decision. If a place could be found for the Iroquois team, there was no place. And lo and behold, who should step up but the Irish team? The Iroquois, they, they placed third and the Irish finished 12th. So the Irish just sort of said, yeah, this is the right thing to do. Not even counting the fact that the sport of lacrosse was actually created by the Native Americans. It's beautiful. Look at that. It all comes back. It's just a marvelous thing. I, I didn't know that either. So this is one of the, what is great about this story as well is it, it's one of those gifts that keeps on giving because it's about generosity and kindness and goodness and things that we need right now. I never knew that the lacrosse had those origins as well. And I never knew about this relationship between them. Between, it spans many areas. Well, and the, the neat thing about this connection between the Irish and uh, the Native American tribes is the fact that it has just gone on for so long and there's been so many points of connection. It's not just that one time where they did the first donation uh, back during the potato famine. It's not just the lacrosse thing. Uh, it's not just the the GoFundMe page. There, there's so many ways that it goes back and forth. So clearly these two cultures, which are also founded on a tremendous amount of history and a tremendous amount of uh family history, uh, these stories are being passed down and they continue on from, from generation to generation, which is really something that uh, just gives you gives you a little bit of hope as this absolutely miserable year yeah. comes to an end. Yeah, and, and the fact that it keys into that the, the Irish potato famine as well, it goes to show times of hardship is really when you you kind of people stand up for each other 
Yeah, it is. It's lovely to see. It's funny because, you know, I, I find sometimes in, uh, I don't know about British culture, but certainly in North American culture, the, the, the idea of the potato famine is sometimes used as a punchline just because of the name potato famine. Sounds like people don't have potatoes to eat. But but the Irish potato famine was like catastrophically bad, like tens of thousands of people dying in absolutely catastrophic ways. It, it was absolutely. You know, it was. I, I've only been to Ireland once myself, actually, which is crazy, given I'm sort of so close to there. And and I remember going over at the time and uh, and seeing there was there was I think there was a shop selling potatoes and they had the tagline saying what's more Irish than potatoes and and that was their tagline and you think yeah historically well no potatoes maybe but either way it's, <laughs> as you said it's a, it, it, I don't mean that flippantly but it's it is seen as a punchline to many things and but you it made me realise how key something just one food stuff like that can be to an entire nation and sustaining them and when that failed yeah absolutely millions and millions of people. Uh, you know, suffered and, and died in those uh, in that problem. That's yeah, and the fact that they, they looked a world away and this gathering was big. I didn't even know that there were gatherings, you know, uh, being made and collections being made in in America at all. Let alone the fact that this uh, Native American nation was was helping out so much. The the question that I had when I first saw this was, uh, in terms of the the Iroquois taking this collection, passing the hat around, and sending it to Ireland. How did they even hear about it in the first place? It's not like they pulled it up on Twitter. You know, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't know that GoFundMe even existed back in the eighteen forties. <laughs> and that is it for this week, Paul. Thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have some socials to send our way? Oh, all of those things. Yeah, my name's Paul Carenza, and you can find me on various social media doing those things. So the podcast is the British Broadcasting Century, and that's telling the story of the origins of the BBC and things like that. And uh, yeah, I'm just you know, I'm a comedian and I'm a writer. Except right now, I'm not really a stand-up comedian because I can't legally go out of my house and stand up anywhere. So I'm a, I'm a sit-down comedian, and um, and we adapt as we go, don't we? Now, listen, your other area of expertise is uh, is Christmas. So oh yeah. Uh, if you're if you're interested, sometime in late December, if you wanted to uh, pop back on the show and uh, do this again and hit us up with some facts, always love a Christmas special. Yeah, I wrote this book, The Hark, the Biography of Christmas, and really just because I was fascinated by why we do the things we do at Christmas, and I wanted to read a book about it, and I couldn't find one, so I wrote one. And <laughs> uh, and ever since then, I I've, I love all those things, the way that it all connects up, and Dickens and Santa, and just every little Christmassy weird custom we have has a reason, and I love getting into all that stuff. Take matters into your own hands. Absolutely. It's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Thank you. Cheers. What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at threeinterestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3interesting. You'll get a shout-out on the show. 